You can turn to John 4, John chapter 4 in your Bibles, and as you're turning there, let me tell you the story about a man named Emile Calliet, a Frenchman just after World War I, who was a man of learning, a voracious reader, but a man restless to find meaning in life. He read widely, he studied deeply, until one day it dawned on him that what he longed for was a book that would understand him. A book that would understand him. He said, a a book that would speak to my condition and help me through life's happenings. He had stumbled on to the occasional experience of finding a passage in a book here or there that really struck his heart, but he never found it in any whole book. And so he increasingly determined to have a book that would understand him, so he decided to make one for himself. He took a leather-bound journal and filled it with the passages that he would come across where it pulled at his heart, it made sense to him where, as he said, it spoke to him and moved him out of fear and anguish to jubilation. At last, one day, he was finally filled with his book. The journal was filled with these passages. And so with great excitement and anticipation, he walked to a park and he sat on a green grass patch and opened his book and began to read hoping he would find this book that would understand him. But he was soon filled with disappointment. He said the book had no life. It didn't speak to him. Each passage simply reminded him of the time he put it in that book. And so it was a book of his own making. He knew the experiment failed. In God's providence, on that very day, his wife received a Bible Up until this point, he had forbade her from ever bringing a Bible into their home. But on this fateful day, she could not resist from receiving a Bible from a pastor and could not resist from bringing it home. She humbly told her husband that she had brought a Bible home, but he interrupted, A Bible, you say? Where is it? Show me. I've never seen one before. Then Emile tells us, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. The providential circumstances amid which that book had found me now made it clear that while it seemed absurd to speak of a book understanding a man, this could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. So tonight we turn to the living and active word of God, the one that speaks afresh 
of the living God and his mighty acts. We, we turn to that mirror of scripture, as James calls it, which sometimes reveals us more clearly than we want to see. We turn to John's gospel tonight to see again that one who has become alive to us. Now this past Sunday, we started in Psalm 122 and then made our way to several parts of the Bible on either side of Psalm 122. And one of those passages we turned to was John 4, that encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We saw on Sunday that Jesus radically reinstitutionalized or, or rather reoriented worship in John 4. He unhitched God's worship from a place and tied it to a person himself. So he said that worship is now in spirit and in truth. It centers on Jesus, not on Jerusalem. Jesus is now the temple. He's the place of God's presence. It's where we go to behold his glory. It's where sacrifice is made and where hope and fellowship uh, are found. That's the first half of this discussion. Rather, that's the second half, I should say, of this discussion between Jesus and the woman at the well. Tonight, I'd like to turn your attention to the first half of their discussion, which is equally as helpful to whatever we were talking about on Sunday. I think you'll see that. Let's start by reading the first 19 verses of John 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would, give, would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Well, here we have a passage that's about living water. Living water that Jesus came to bring. This passage shows us the need for living water, the offer of it, the significance of it, and the results that flow from it. So first, the need for living water. We see this as the setting is sketched out for us by John in the first nine verses or so. This is a woman who needs living water. Never mind yet what living water is. She doesn't know. We don't need to know yet to know that this is a woman who needs something. She knows she needs something even though she doesn't know exactly what she needs. You have to read between the lines slightly. Scholars tell us that there's something unusual and significant about her going to draw water at the sixth hour, at noontime. In these days, women would fetch the water for the households, and they would do so either early in the morning or later in the afternoon or evening when it was cooler. You wouldn't go at high noon when the sun is up at its fullest. That's where she is. She's there at the sixth hour. She's there alone at the sixth hour, not because she accidentally scheduled her day wrong. She actually went at the wrong time, quote unquote, so that she'd be alone. Getting water at the well was apparently a social affair for women in these days. It would be like the office water cooler if you have one of those. Maybe it's Starbucks or the equivalent of Twitter and Facebook today. This is where women socialized. But this woman is not interested in or welcomed with other women. Why? Well, it would seem that this woman is a social outcast due to her extensive resume of husbands and boyfriends. Verse 17, Jesus said, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Jesus isn't telling her this to shame her, to embarrass her, or even to just simply rebuke her. It's actually merciful. In their conversation, Jesus is trying to get her to see that he's offering something more than just no more trips to the well. No more getting water. No more thirst. He's offering something so much more, but she can't see it and she can't get it. It's quite like Nicodemus in the previous chapter when Jesus told him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus scratched his head and said, how does a grown man climb back in his mother's womb? He just didn't get it. So the Samaritan woman says that she wants her thirst to be quenched, but she doesn't see the pattern of unquenchable pursuits of satisfaction in her life related to these husbands and boyfriends. The book of Ecclesiastes is about this universal, feudal pursuit of satisfaction. We all know it, even though we don't all pursue it the same way. For some, they pursue lovers and relationships and acceptance and affection. For others, their pursuit is one for success or fame or accomplishments or intelligence or smarts. For some, it's leisure, 
or security or safety or longevity. But Solomon, who wrote that book of Ecclesiastes, said, in all of this, it is like striving after the wind, like grasping after the wind. Everything under the sun has a futility and emptiness to it, though it deceives us. And so we pursue it and we pursue more of it and we want another kind of it in a different degree of it in another place for it. But this is all grasping after the wind. With the Samaritan woman, we don't know what happened with any one of these failed marriages. We're not told the stories. We're not told who is more at fault. These are just the facts. She's had five husbands and now has a live-in boyfriend. But just that alone, no doubt, inevitably involves feelings of shame and disappointment and regret and emptiness, perhaps hopelessness, bewilderment, bewilderment, frustration, on and on the list could go. Emptiness is inevitable in this world. At times we're victims to it, it seems. Almost tricked by it, it seems. But scripture also assigns guilt to it. We sin when we try to get more out of things than God. We sin when we try to get more out of things than he intends for us to get out of them. So Jeremiah 2 talks about this problem. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's that woman. That's this woman of John 4. Her cisterns are empty. And yet Jesus came to her. I love verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. He didn't have to pass through Samaria, actually. I mean, Jews almost never passed through Samaria in these days. Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. The product of intermarrying and mixing religions during the days of the Babylonian captivity. These are Assyrians and Jews producing offspring and making up a sort of new mixed religion. And those are Samaritans. So these are seen as worse than heathen. Samaritans are not just not fully Jewish, but they're representative of the rebellion and the spiritual corruption of God's people during one of the lowliest times in history for them. The Jews around Jesus' time had a saying that if one met a Samaritan walking along the road, one should walk into the ditch rather than his shadow touch the shadow of the Samaritan. So a good Jew walked around Samaria even though it took longer. But Jesus walked through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria because he had a plan. He had an agenda. He not only walked into Samaria and up to Jacob's well, but he engaged this woman. And with increasing levels of shockingness, he then asked her for a drink in verse 7. Samaritans were considered ceremonially unclean by the Jews. 
Just being around a Samaritan or touching a Samaritan would then mean that that Jew became ceremonially unclean and then would have to perform certain ritual washes in order to get clean. Jesus isn't worried about such things, is he? With Jesus, his purity wipes out uncleanness. Uncleanness doesn't get passed to him where then he's unclean. His purity gets passed to unclean sinners because he's all-powerful and that holy and that glorious and good. So Jesus crosses social boundaries and cultural boundaries and ceremonial boundaries and even the spiritual sensibilities of the day. It's shocking to her that he asks for a drink, sharing the same cup or or whatever it would be, a giant wooden spoon, something like that. It's shocking to the disciples down in verse 27 when they return and see him talking to this woman. But Jesus seeks those who are far away, those who aren't remotely close. Jesus seeks those who are least likely candidates to come to him. He seeks those who need living water, but don't get what it means. They don't yet understand what they need. This woman needs living water, even though she isn't sure exactly what she needs. But then secondly, there's the offer of living water. In verse 10, there's the offer. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And what an offer that is. It's a gift, we're told. In fact, multiple times in these verses, you see those words gift and given and give. But you also see some conditions within this offer, if you look carefully. In verse 10, Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, you have to know the gift of God that he's talking about here. It's this gift of living water. We'll talk more about what it is in a little bit, but that's a condition, apparently. You have to know what the gift of God is, or else you won't wonder who it is that's offering it. That's the second condition. Do you know who this is, who's offering it to you? And then if you do, a third condition, you have to ask him. You would have asked him, and he would have then given you living water. Now, living water in their day was a common way of distinguishing between well water and spring water. So a well has water in it that is usually stagnant and hence more prone to contamination. But a spring is flowing and hence, it's usually more fresh and clean and refreshing. So this living water for Jesus symbolizes inner satisfaction, refreshment, salvation, cleansing, healing, real life, happiness, and joy. Of course, the Samaritan gal doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about living water in such symbolic terms. She thinks he's simply talking about streams versus wells. He has spring water that he's offering her, and well water's pretty darn good. 
In fact, it was good enough for Jacob who made us this well. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? It was good enough for him to make this well and for him to drink this well. It doesn't get much greater in patriarch history than Jacob. Abraham and Isaac were his fathers. They're pretty darn good. But Jacob's there in the top three. And of course, Jesus is greater than Jacob. And he does have living water that Jacob couldn't have imagined in his lifetime. But again, even by verse 15, she's still stuck on the physical. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw anymore. And yet, despite the back and forth, despite the lack of progress, Jesus is so lovingly patient and persistent with her. Notice how masterful he is in his gentle poking and prodding. And again, mentioning her husband slash husbands in that vein, not to attack her or to shame her, but to get her to see her specific version of looking for love in all the wrong places. Go, call your husband. Have him come here. Uh, I have no husband. Well, you're sure right about that. You've had five husbands. They're not your husband. The one you're with right now isn't your husband husband. That's when she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This is not written on her forehead. You couldn't tell just by looking at her that she's had five husbands and a boyfriend at home. But, but she's right. Jesus is a prophet because he knows. And yet he's so much more than just a prophet. If only she had known the Old Testament prophets, See, the Samaritans didn't believe in anything after Deuteronomy. They believed the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and that's it. She didn't have the prophets. That's to her disadvantage because the prophets talked a lot about living water. So let's now think about the significance. Thirdly, the significance of this living water. We should look back to the Old Testament prophets to find the significance of it, because this is not just a metaphor that Jesus came up with on the spot since he happened to be at a well, and he can think of better water than well water. It's spring water. So I'll use that as an illustration for how, what I have to offer her. Now, this is no on-the-spot illustration. The significance of this living water goes back. Well, let's start in Ezekiel 47. Would you turn there? Ezekiel 47. And here's what you'll see, if you were with us on Sunday, how this relates to Psalm 122 about Jerusalem and the temple and where God's plan was going from that day that David wrote that great psalm. The temple would have greater significance later in Israel's history. Now, in this prophecy from Ezekiel, up to this point, he's already been told about a shepherd king who's coming I think that's chapter 34. He's already been told about God sending his spirit to come with cleansing and healing. And he's already been told about the new covenant that God will one day make. And then in Ezekiel 47, God gives him a vision of the temple. This during the time when there is no temple. The temple's been destroyed and Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple coming, but it's far too grand than anything 
that will ever appear in the days of Ezra or Nehemiah or even when Herod the Great makes that temple a 2.0 or 3.0 with his great money. You see, if you just glance down at the first five or six verses of Ezekiel 47, you'll see that this vision is of a temple where water starts to trickle out of the back of the temple, first starting to flow west. And then all of a sudden, he's taken to the other side and water's flowing to the south. And then it's flowing east and then it's flowing north. And then the angel takes him over to the depth of it and it's at first ankle deep. And then it's swelling, it's now waist high. And eventually he has to swim in it. And then eventually it is too deep or strong for a man to pass through. It's strong, it's swelling, it's going global. And then the angel explains this. Look at verse 8, halfway through verse 8. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Verse 12. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water that from them flows from the sanctuary. For their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, if you know the book of Revelation very well, you know that language. Keep your spot here and just listen to Revelation 22. Hear how this sounds like Ezekiel 47, but we know that this is the final state of things. This is the end of the end. When the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, the temple as it were, and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, back from the garden, here it is again, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There are many passages in the Old Testament prophets like this. One reason why we're called Desert Springs Church is because of these Old Testament prophecies about Not just waters coming from God's temple, but waters in the desert, in the dry and thirsty land. God providing not a drop of water, but streams or rivers or springs of water that keep flowing and flowing and flowing. That's why Jesus in John 4 describes himself as living water. He has living water, not just fresh water, not just a nice illustration to contrast with a still well. He's not better water. He is God. He's the temple. He's the plan for the nations. He is the healing of the nations. The water is about to flow and it will flow in to people. It will flow in to sinners. And what will it mean if a sinner has this living water? 
Well, fourthly, let's consider the results of living water. Let's turn back to John 4 and consider the results of living water. Jesus talks about the results in verse 13 and 14 when he said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, your well water, normal water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So no more thirst. Remember, that's a spiritual imagery. So this is no more satisfaction being missed. Uh, No more clawing for satisfaction, but satisfaction achieved and sustained. An internal spring of living water. He'll put it within you. And not just put a drop in you or a cup in you or even a pool in you if it could possibly fit. But he will put a spring of water in you. The spring of water then wells up all the way to heaven, to eternal life forever and ever. And who's this for? Everyone. That's what Jesus says in verse 13. Everyone. Anyone. It's a gift. It's for those who get what is needed most in their life. It's for those who come to the end of themselves. It's for those who are willing to give up on their favorite old watering holes that taste bitter. You have to understand what you need, according to Jesus. Not what you think you need, but what you need. According to Jesus, you need to understand who it is that speaks this to this woman in these pages, but also now to you. It's a book that understands me. You need to understand what it is he offers. Not just forgiveness, but forgiveness and so much more. You need to understand that this is something only he can give. And if you understand all that, then ask. Ask and believe that he gives. But what is it exactly that he gives? We've said, yes, it was promised in the Old Testament. Yes, it's God himself. Is it himself? Is it Jesus that he's talking about as the living water? In some places in the Bible, that is the case. Not so much here. Let's ask, fifthly, what is the identity of this living water? Fifth and last, the identity of this living water. For this, we have to turn to chapter 7. Turn to John chapter 7, where we get a quick answer. When Jesus brings up the rivers of living water theme again, verse 38, whoever believes in me, there's another condition for receiving this living water, belief. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now John provides a commentary. Now this he said about the Spirit. For those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John's saying the only reason he didn't mention Spirit yet is because the Spirit hadn't been given yet. But that's what he was talking about. The living water is the Spirit of God. 
out of his heart will flow rivers of water. That he said about the Spirit. Isaiah 44 equates the two. Waters of life, the Spirit poured out upon your offspring. You can look back to John 3 before we get to our passage of John 4. In John 3, verse 34, Jesus was talking about God has sent me who utters words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So we've got the Spirit at the end of chapter 3. And then Jesus had to go to Samaria in chapter 4 because he had to get talking to a woman about living water, living water, which is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that life-giving water that Jesus came to bring. And that living water, which is the Spirit, is nothing less than God's presence in all his comprehensive blessings and promises wrapped into one. That's through Jesus, but it is the Spirit. And when we have the Spirit, we have joy, we have satisfaction, we have peace, we have contentment. Not completely so, do we? I mean, we have to be honest. We don't want to oversell this. We have our own experiences to wrestle with. So yes, we must say that when we receive this living water, the Spirit of God, it doesn't mean we never long for anything else again. It doesn't mean that we won't even long more for him. In the days ahead, we will. We'll long for more of him. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. And all this in John 4 also doesn't mean that we will never forget the true source of joy and begin to act like our former selves here and there. In other words, Christians still covet. Christians still believe the lies of the world that this thing will satisfy. But what's different is that we now know the real problem in this world. We now know the problem of finding satisfaction in things that are not God. We now know the solution to that sin of looking for love in all the wrong places. We now have the hope of what Jesus came to bring. We now know the pathway to true joy even when we walk off it every now and then. We are now no longer so utterly restless and without answers as you once were and as this woman here is for a time. That's what's changed. We know the problem. We know the solution. We know the pathway. Even if we're occasionally forgetful, we come back to the answers and we remember that in the end, we will get all of him. We will be fully satisfied. We will not in one moment be restless. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. We will be sinless. We will do nothing but glorify him. Every enjoyment we have in the new heaven and the new earth will be in enjoyment in him and through him and from him and back to him. I don't understand that yet because I'm a fallen sinner still, but when he fully changes us into the image of Christ, 
in that new heaven and new earth, we will get everything in its proper proportion. Him as everything, and then everything he has made to be enjoyed and used for his glory and purposes as he intended for it to be. In the meantime, we ask ourselves, are we being thankful that he's given us his spirit? Are we mindful of his spirit? Sometimes in Protestant Reformed circles, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the forgotten person of the Trinity. May it never be, though. May we be conscious of the Spirit's work. May we be thankful for the Spirit's work, pondering it more. It is a bit of a more hidden ministry to us than that which the Lord Jesus has done for us upon the cross and in his resurrection. So it takes more work to remember what's happening ongoingly behind the scenes as the Spirit of God dwells within us. Let's ponder it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's practice his presence. Let's enjoy his presence. Let's seek to manifest the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Peace, joy, love, etc. Self-control. Let us continue to remember that we now are not just filled with living water, not just now quenched in our innermost beings, we're the temple of God. Remember, the water was flowing out of that Ezekiel temple into the world. Jesus came to bring that water. Jesus puts that water within us. And it is now a spring of water that not only shoots upward to eternal life, but flows outward to the nations. Which means then that you being the temple of God is not just a privilege to be enjoyed or a presence to be practiced and acknowledged. It is a responsibility to be employed. You're the temple. The water's flowing. The nations need it. It's dry and crusty out there. It comes from Jesus, this life-giving water. If we believe in him and trust what he said, if we ask for this living water, he puts it in us. He puts it in us not as a dead end, but as a spring, a spring for others. And that's exactly how the story of this Samaritan woman ends, how it culminates. Look down again, John chapter 4, look at verse 28. Here it says that the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then there's sort of a parenthesis, verse 31 to 34, there's this exchange between Jesus and the disciples. They were at first concerned that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Then they were concerned that he wasn't eating food even though he was hungry. But then Jesus was concerned even more so that they really don't understand what's happening right before their very eyes. So verse 35, he says to the disciples, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, 
I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already. The one who reaps is receiving wages. That's the woman from the well. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower, that's Jesus, and the reaper, that's the woman, may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. You showed up while you were getting food. Now you're about to see a real harvest take place. So then in verse 39, John tells us, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, not just hers. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Harvest time. Isn't that beautiful? And how was he the Savior of the world? We, we know more than the story as it ends here. How does he give us the spirit exactly? How can we dwell with God and God dwell within us when we're sinners? When we've been looking for love in all the wrong places our whole lives. We've been looking for other gods who will fill needs that Jesus was supposed to fill. Well, Jesus died for those sins too. That's what the cross is all about. That's why we're here tonight, to remember what our Savior did, how his body was torn and how his blood was spilled out for us and for our specific sins, those sins of covetousness, those sins of idolatry and materialism and grasping and groping and clinging and clawing. All these can be forgiven because he's the Savior of the world. Because he died for sinners and was raised on the third day 